Hello and welcome to the Amy Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Dave Middleton and I'm the chair of the Association of Medical Insurers and Intermediaries, or Amy for short. Amy is a health and wellbeing association with over 130 members, including all leading insurers and intermediaries. And our aim is to be the voice of the health and wellbeing industry. Today's subject is neurodiversity, including how employers address this to ensure they are diverse and inclusive. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Amanda Kirby, who is an expert in neurodiversity. She's chair of the ADHD Foundation and also works with the Dyspraxic Foundation and several autistic charities. She's also written eight books. It's a fantastic CV, Amanda, and welcome to today's session. Thank you very much for inviting me. First question I want to ask you, Amanda, is that you were a GP a few years ago and you decided to specialise in neurodiversity. Can you just tell me a little bit about that and, and why you went down this route? I'm a parent, I'm also a grandparent of neurodivergent kids and grandchildren. And when my son was first diagnosed with dyspraxia or developmental coordination disorder around three years of age, I was, I was a GP at the time and I had to go from place to place to tell his story to different health professionals, get help and support in school. And I thought at that time, if that was difficult for me, to find out, I was a medic, knew the medical provision, but if I had to go and find out what was around, how to get help and support, it was going to be it's really difficult. And I thought it was difficult for me, it must be difficult for other parents. And naively, because it's 30 plus years ago, set up a centre for children and then adults to try and bring people together so they didn't have to go from place to place to tell their stories and get an integrated approach. So it changed. he changed my career, really, completely, because I realised that this was a, a problem for many, many families. It's a fantastic thing to do, to change your career like that. Right? How big a decision was that? It was a gradual decision, really. I was working as a GP, then I worked part-time. I set up a centre, I set up a clinical centre, and eventually I went, do you know, I can't be a GP and run this centre as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I started from scratch. I had a blank sheet of paper. It was very naive in a way, but I wanted to have for parents. Uh, and, and at the time, it was for children because uh, 30 years ago, you thought that you grew out of neurodivergent traits and conditions. That yeah. suddenly on your 16th birthday, you've got a birthday card and it's all gone. Now, we know far more that people grow up and continue to have some challenges, but also strengths as well into adulthood. But 30 plus years ago, people were talking about developmental conditions and thinking this, these were children's stuff. And, and, I, and I, I think that naivety came into play, which was probably quite positive because I didn't realise how complex and difficult and challenging it was going to be. Um, but what I knew was that we needed to have solutions that brought paediatricians and psychologists and OTs and speech and language therapists, everybody together, so parents weren't getting multiple reports asking them to do X and A and B and C, but it was one child who would be asked to do those things and to bring yeah. those strands together. So it was a gradual decision, but it um, I've never regressed it. And just taking a little step back, because there'll be many parents and future parents hopefully listening to this podcast, what were the first things that you noticed in, in your son that kind of you thought isn't neurodivergent? Um, so... He's the second of my three kids, and he was slower to a bit slower to walk. Uh, he didn't crawl, and his coordination wasn't as good. 
So things like feeding, dressing, those sort of things. So we've seen some developmental delay um, compared to my other child. Also, obviously, as a doctor, I and I've done pediatrics, I recognised that he wasn't hitting some of the milestones. That uh, so I had an advantage there, but I also had a comparison of my, his elder brother who had reached those developmental milestones. So that was the first concern. He was diagnosed very early, um, and he had diagnosis of developmental coordination disorder or dyspraxia. 30 plus years ago, people didn't know much about this. So that's why I ended up developing a career and writing books and doing research in DCD as well. I needed to find out more. I needed to understand more. I needed to know how to support him and other, then as a consequence, other children and adults. So as a parent, sometimes, unless you've got other barometers of other children or you're going out and watching kids when your children are playing and how they're interacting, sometimes it can be quite difficult for parents to pick up those some of the signs and traits. And for things like ADHD, it might be only when your child's in school and all the children are sitting down and focusing and your child is a bit fidgety and not not engaging as well, that you might have your first alert, might be the teacher saying, I'm a bit concerned they don't seem to be learning as they should. Yeah, and at that stage 30 years ago, what kind of support was there, there for, for parents? I mean, you, you were, I suppose, lucky in one way that you, you you knew a little bit about what was going on, um, but many parents wouldn't. So what, what was what was support then? Support was minimal. Um, you know, going into school, I remember talking, saying, you know, my child's got dyspraxia, he's got other labels as well, ADHD and other conditions as well. But I, at the time we talked about dyspraxia and the teachers would say, you mean dyslexia, don't you? <laughs> and I went, no, I don't mean dyslexia, I mean dyspraxia, and then having to explain what that was. And yeah. I started going as a as a parent, the Dyspraxia Foundation in the UK was starting up about that time, and started going to, a there was a local parent support group that was, that was being run by an occupational therapist. And I found this enormously helpful, just hearing from other parents about their experiences, because I might be a doctor, but I'm still a mother, and and hearing from other parents with very practical strategies they had at home and school was enormously helpful. And then I got involved with the Dyspraxia Foundation in the early days, and I'm still involved with the Dyspraxia Foundation today, because I recognise the value of providing very practical guidance, everyday guidance. It's not just a label. Gaining a diagnosis is one thing, but actually it's the day-to-day stuff that parents really want help, whether that's sleep or feeding or mealtimes or doing homework getting some of that practical guidance was really important. And that's why I developed a lot of resources and wrote very practical books for parents over the years as well, because I thought that was incredibly important. I'll touch on the books a, a little later on, if that's okay. I'd want to pick up on, on something when I was doing a bit of research into into the subject. And, and it seems to me that the language that people use is is really important. Um, even from under somebody neurodiverse, which is incorrect, you grip in them to neurodivergent, which is about the individual. But then I think back to when I was at school and, and there was talk about um, children with special needs, which seemed to be a horrible phrase. And even in today's education, I was a, a chair of governors and you talked about sending people special educational needs. And even that for me put people into a category which I'm not sure I wanted to hear. If that's right, could you just kind of talk me through the language and, and how important it is and, and what we need to understand? 
So let me start with sort of neurodiversity and neurodivergence as a starting point, because often people don't have a conversation sometimes because they're worried about getting it right, getting it wrong. So neurodiversity is as all. Um, nobody owns neurodiversity. It represents the way we think, move, act, communicate, process information differently. With 84 billion brain cells connected in billions of different ways, why wouldn't we not be a neuro? Why would we all not be neurodiverse? That's what it's saying. Our brains vary. There's no condition that is associated specifically with neurodiversity that owns neurodiversity. But often people associate the term quite often, especially in America, with autism um, that sort of adopted this framing of neurodiversity. Neurodivergence is where you diverge away from a social norm. So in society, in education, if you think, process, move, act, communicate, read, do maths in the way that the average child does, then you'll slide through the middle of education. So if you can kick a ball, read a bit, spell a bit, do maths a bit, you'll do quite well because you'll fit into the expectations in education and their employment, the same goes as well. So if you can uh, apply for a job, communicate in an interview, work with other people, you'll, it's that social construct. And, that, and so divergence is when you do those things differently from the average or from the mean. And we can positively diverge with our talents and skills. So you could be amazingly numerate, right? And maybe you'll end up as an actuary or, you know, you could be amazing at sports. And for a few people, they might end up as a premier footballer. So if you've got spiky profiles where you've got those strengths and you end up aligning them to your careers, that's great because people will harness those talents and utilize them effectively. You can also have challenges. You can negatively diverge in terms of the challenges you might have. And that might be partly related to the environment you're put in. So that if you find that um, you can't hear and people don't provide an alternative form of communicating with you, then you're going to be excluded from those or, or visually or have visual difficulties or have coordination. So if you're in a meeting and you've got handwriting difficulties, then that's going to be difficult if you're the one who's been told to take the notes, you know. So, yeah. Yep. So you can diverge positively and negatively. In reality... Most of us aren't one thing or another. When we're talking about neurodivergent traits, we're often talking about conditions like dyslexia, ADHD, autism, the dyscalculia, dyspraxia, tic disorders. Um, we're talking about those conditions because they all overlap commonly and they're the most common. But it doesn't mean only those conditions because our brain is the same brain so if you have traumatic brain injury, that might um, make you focus, communicate differently. If you've had a stroke, that might make you communicate differently or move differently. So it's not owned by a specific condition. And as you're right, David, that the language changes all the time. Well, we've got to be careful that this positive neurodiversity framing, because it's saying, tell me about you and recognize the individual, the person and how to support them is that we don't use it as, we don't bleach the term. So we don't start using it in the way, having pejorative framing. So if I go back, we used to talk about children who were retarded. Now that term would not be used in today's society and would be considered a very negative framing. But we, well, I think I laugh cynically when we use things like special, right? special educational needs because sometimes we don't really consider these children very special at all 
they're often excluded or marginalised from education and employment. We specific, well, the, it's it's only specific to the child. We lump them under an umbrella of specific learning difficulties, but actually, it's the learning challenges that somebody, a child, might have or an adult. It's only specific to that individual, even though we lump yeah. all together. So those terms and words sometimes become. Um, I think they end up not being very specific at all. I think we've got to be careful. Neurodiversity framing is great. I think it's a useful one because it doesn't imply uh, you are X or you are Y, so we need to do this to you. It invites a conversation. So how do you think schools should label, if label is the right word? What should we, what should we be talking about and how do we talk about neurodiversity without upsetting anybody? Well, I think the first thing is schools and, and employment should be thinking universal design principles. We need to recognise, first of all, there are children in those schools who will be diverging away from the way we teach, we educate. And if we have proper inclusive practice, we need to design our processes and principles of delivery, assessment and engagement that is inclusive for all children. Otherwise, we're literally designing education for 50% of the population. So I think that's the first thing. And the UN rights of, of the child, we should be, these are global rights, saying all children have should have access to education and it should be inclusive in approach. So I, I think schools need to start with the principle, those kids are there, they're always going to be there, and we need to design for universal design principles. So what I mean by that is considering that some children won't be able to write, won't be able to record, or won't be able to communicate, or need to move, you know, and, and challenging how we deliver, moving away from that sort of technical era where you had children all facing the front and the teacher facing you, to a digital era where we're yeah. really flipping things on the head. You mentioned the workplace, and this is where I really want to kind of focus, really, on how, as an employer, Without being told, we have to be more inclusive and more diverse because I find that most human beings don't like being told how we do that, but also how we recognize that our workforce might already have some neurodivergent individuals, whether in a positive or a negative way. So there's two things there. Now, what are your thoughts and what are your views on how we approach those two areas? I think what we need to be thinking about Alongside education is thinking employment is do universal design principles. I, I think that the problem when we retrofit one person after another, it feels weighty and difficult and people feel like they need to have huge amounts of knowledge and are worried about that. So no manager can be an expert in ADHD, autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, diabetes, epilepsy, migraine, you know, and, 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 and they shouldn't be. They're managing individuals in the day-to-day -day basis. So I think the first thing is awareness is good, but it also can have a double-edged sword because what it can do sometimes then is go, well, I didn't know what I didn't know, but now I really know what I don't know. And so I'm worried about having somebody in my team because I yeah. don't know how to support them, even though they're already in their team. So I think if we take universal design principles and what I mean by that in the employment sector is really think about things that you can do for everybody. And I give an example that if you have an escalator or a lift, you may use that from time to time just because you're tired and you can't be bothered to use the stairs. You may not be physically impaired. You may not have challenges in that way, but you'll use those adjustments. And so if we start to bake in our systems inclusive practice, 
it's useful for everybody. You might use closed caption and a busy on a train when other people around you because you don't want to put the sound on. So we use technology in lots of different ways. And if we use it in a way that we're flattening the bell curve and including more people in, it's going to be more effective. And we can do that from recruitment. So making sure our job adverts have meaning to everybody, that we're not using jargon that some people will be able to use and others not. By having different types of application processes, telling people at all stages of an inter- of an application process what's going to happen. That's useful for everybody. Having a map of the place or a video of where you're going to do and telling people about the car park and how to use the public transport if they're going to an interview. All of those things that we can do for everybody are going to help everybody. And even in the jobs with a manager is training managers just to have better communication. When I mean that, dialogue, not monologue. So just because I've said it doesn't mean you've understood it. Checking for understanding. Um, understanding how to do asynchronous and commu- or synchronous communication in teams. So asking people what their preferences are. So and and that's going to have better engagement for everybody. And then utilizing your technology you might already have in your system. I have Office three six five on my laptop. It's got I can use speech to text, text to speech. It's got immersive reader. It's got a translator. All sorts of tools we've already got. Letting people know they're there. And if you're in an organization, um, avoiding jargon or giving the, everybody in the organization a jargon buster. I don't know any big organization that doesn't have their own language, you know, of metaphors and acronyms and just letting people know from the start of a job and putting them on an internet. That's something that could be useful for everybody. In the recruitment process and the interview process, I think there can be issues where the questions aren't particularly good. For, for example, I, take an autistic person, I might ask that person if they've ever had an issue in a previous role with a manager. Now, they might say no, well, yes, because they've answered my question. But another person may expand on that, which might skew my mind to think, oh, well, that person's more engaging. So is there any training around recruitment, particularly interviews that that can be given to to people to kind of stop them going down the wrong route, really? So I think that really is important. So the practical awareness about what to do and how to engage and understanding that asking questions about, you know, if you ever went to the moon, what would you do? You know, what would you cook? Whatever. And those sort of abstract, odd questions that people love to ask in an interview that have no basis <laughs> or correlation with the job you're ever going to do. Um, I think that we can guidance. So we have an e-learning program for managers that they can learn those things very practically and take them through those sort of things and guidance for that. I think it's a, that awareness of thinking about what are you asking and what's the job. So if you're asking questions that don't relate to job functions, why are you asking it? It's a bit like asking a bricklayer, could you help tell me how to build a brick wall? And they can't do it, but they can actually build a brick wall really well. So yeah, about what are the skills you're requiring and why are you asking? And I think that we can reduce biases. So as you gave that example, but actually I can see some people who might be brilliant um, IT, they might be good at coding, computer work, but not good at an interview, but they can do their job perfectly well, but they yeah. might be reticent to answer questions, take longer to process information. So letting line managers understand and not be judging people 
on how they're performing when it's got nothing related to the job they're going to be doing. Yes, that's a really good example of of the interview process and going through that and educating, I I suppose, before and during the interview process about existing workforces and and helping and supporting um, employees, colleagues, peers and managers in that. So I can see that um, over the last year or so, there are a number of organisations that have got employee resource groups or ability groups um, around neurodiversity. That can be a very good point for checking in to say, what's going on in our organisation? What's it feel like if you are neurodivergent going through the process? Are you having the same opportunities for progress, for training, skills training? What's stopping you? And, And feeding back in a safe sort of way. They can also be a really good place for other people, allies in an organisation to have conversations to learn more about as well and HR to work. So if you're thinking about adapting your recruitment processes and you want to check in, do you think this is right? Or, uh, you know, if getting that feedback can be really useful. The other thing is that in some organisations, we've got mental health first aiders and we've been running neurodiversity champion training. So alongside, you've only got one brain so we talk about mental health and neurodiversity. It's the same brain. So yeah. trying to encourage those who have been trained in mental health first aid to understand about neurodivergent traits and how that might have an impact on the mental health and well-being if things are challenging for you at home or work. For instance, if I'm going to do a presentation tomorrow and I'm dyslexic and I'm dyspraxic, I have handwriting and spelling challenges, I might be really worried as a manager that I'm going to be shown up in front of my peers if I have to write something on a whiteboard, then I don't sleep. I become very anxious and I perform badly. So understanding that intersection uh, between neurodiversity and mental health is an important one. So those are things that we can do in your current staff. And then providing practical guidance. If you've got an intranet, you can signpost people to help and support. Yep. Um, and providing training as well. There's some really good examples in there. And that's pretty useful information for employers, which I am one, so uh, certainly taking taking those on board. Tell me about your books, eight books. What started you want to write them? And um, give them a little plug. Okay, so I've got, uh, what have I got? I've got parents' books, How to Survive with Guides for Parents in, in Schools of Adults. I've got Spraxia books that have been translated into multiple languages. Last year, bought out Neurodiversity at Work, which won one of the Business Book of the Year awards for diversity and inclusion in the UK. And last week, I bought out a new book on neurodiversity and education, and I'm planning two more books in the next uh, 18 months as well. What I never thought I could write, so that's ironical that I've ended up writing. Yeah. And I ended up doing a column in The Independent at one point in time. So I didn't think that I was a writer, but I suppose that I now decide that I am a writer. Um, I think it's all part of where I started, that I feel very fortunate that I've got, I've had experience, I've learned a lot over the years from people, from parents, from adults and children uh, in different sectors that I'm working with. And I feel very fortunate. I feel that that's important to share this information and writing and explaining what's going and providing practical They're usually very practical books. It's really important. That's why I write a newsletter every week on LinkedIn. I think it's incredibly important to share that information with other people. Yeah, fantastic. So how do our listeners find your books? They can find them on all good bookstalls and bookshops, and they can find it on Amazon if they want to as well. 
the neurodiversity in education is in Corwin and the one at work is Cogan Page. But if you type in neurodiversity and education or neurodiversity at work, you'll find them straight away and you can buy them in paperback or hardback if you want to. Fantastic. Just You mentioned when we first started 30 years ago, you, you noticed your son was neurodivergent. How's he doing? He's doing really well. He's just about to have, a, well, he's not, but his wife is just about to have a baby, second baby. So he's he's got children of his own. Um, he's working. If I look at the child he was at 11 and the man he is today, I couldn't have predicted. He's a wonderful, caring, empathic man. His handwriting's still awful, but he, he uses a computer. Yeah. I think that's one of the things as a parent is really the potential for children to become wonderful people, you know, and utilizing the strengths and skills they've got. I have neurodivergent grandchildren now, a different son, different children. And 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 he's been one of my grandchildren's been identified early, got support. He's eight, he's doing maths at A level. He's coding. And I think that's just a highlight. If you get the right intervention and support, our kids can thrive and and uh, and they can become great adults as well. What a fantastic story, and uh, you should be very proud. Just before we go, you've got your own business. Tell us a little bit about that. So I'm a, a CEO for a tech for good company. That's Do It Solutions. We've developed tools, training, and consultancy. So we have profiling tools, which are used in schools, colleges, universities, workplaces, and in the justice setting. And they provide practical guidance for the individual and for the, if it's employment, for the employers. Um, and for the employees, it provides them with practical guidance and tools to be able to make those adjustments so people can be their best self. And that's, if you go flip back 30 years, often I said to you, people went from place to place to find this information using profiling. You can get a report within minutes of completing it instantly with practical resources. And we deliver e-learning and, and live training and awareness as well. So where I started 30 years, I'm still there trying to help in different ways, in different settings, and make sure that our tools are accessible, they're translatable, and they they provide very practical guidance. So it's been a long journey, but still pretty passionate about this stuff. Yeah, Amanda, it's been absolutely fantastic and, and, and great to listen. And obviously, I've got passion, which is brilliant, but there's some real good tips in there for parents, for employees, for employers. Yeah, thank you so much for, for taking the time to spend with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, David. So um, that's the end of the podcast today. Uh, please look out for our future podcasts on the usual channels of Apple and Spotify. And for Amy members, podcasts will be uploaded to the website. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>